Well, friends, this morning, we want to continue a series of messages throughout the summer months focusing on Jesus' disciples that he designated as his apostles, the sent ones. Uh, Thus far, we have talked about Jesus calling and sending his apostles. We talked about Andrew, the first of the apostles uh, that uh, we, we focused on. Andrew, whose name meant strong man, manly man, and he was a bridge. He played that important role to introduce people to Jesus. Andrew was the one who was known for bringing people to Jesus. Last week on Father's Day, we didn't look at the apostles, but we looked at one of the fathers of the apostles, Zebedee, the father of James and John, known to us as the sons of thunder. And I apologize for my scratchy voice today. I'll try to drink enough water to be legible and uh, to your hearing this morning. But I wanted to share with you an important apostle. Remember our theme verse, and we're going to be in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, have it open to the Gospel of John, because that's uh, primary passages we're going to be in this morning. Because our theme as well comes from John chapter 20, verse 21. We've read it together a couple weeks ago. Let's do that out loud together. John 20, 21. Let's read it together. John 20, 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I have us read this because this is a verse for us. As God sent Jesus, Jesus sends his followers. Sends us into a world where our message is not always welcome, but oh, is it needed. Friends, to do that, to live the life of a follower of Christ in the world today, it takes faith. Because if you live by what you see and hear and experience, the circumstances of life, it's going to be very discouraging, going to be very difficult. As we prayed about, even putting on a vacation Bible school can seem daunting. The task is too great for us. If we look at just circumstances, we need to exercise faith that we have a living God who loves us, has saved us, and now he gives us his power, his guidance, his word to live the life, to be witnesses of Jesus in the world today. We need faith. Just a reminder of what faith is. All the way back in the book of Hebrews, the chapter 11 focuses on faith and great people of faith. That chapter begins, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. God honored faith. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, it seemed as if he was a faith detector. His his alarm went off whenever he was around people of faith. He focused in on it. He lifted it up. He commended it. Jesus loved faith to see people putting their trust in God. Not based on what they saw, but their heart trusting God. This is what God still looks for in us today. And we're going to see it in our friend, our fellow follower of Christ, the Apostle Thomas today. Now you say, Thomas, that's the wrong guy to be preaching about faith, Pastor. Thomas is the doubter, doubting Thomas. Isn't that the opposite of faith? Well, don't be in such a rush. We'll see what scripture really shows us. I've called today seeing or believing. Now the painting 
is one of my favorite artists of biblical scenes. He painted far more than that. He painted in the, in the, uh, 1500s. His name was Caravaggio. And, uh, his paintings were always seemed to be taking place at night with a light source shining on them. And this is his famous painting. It's in a museum in Potsdam. And the painting is called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. It means Thomas is amazed. He's incredulous. Jesus has appeared to him and shown him the wounds on his hand and his side. And in this strange painting, Jesus, the only calm one in the picture, because all the disciples present are amazed and shocked, Jesus gently guides Thomas's hand to the wound in his side. Though, as we'll see in John chapter 20 today, there's no evidence in Scripture that Thomas took Jesus up on his invitation to see and touch his wounds. Jesus was answering something Thomas says earlier in the passage. But this is the Thomas you and I remember. <clears throat> As we focus in on the 12 apostles, we almost want to skip over Thomas because he doesn't quite seem worthy or making the cut of the top apostles like Peter and James and John, even Andrew, the missionary-hearted apostle. Thomas, known proverbially to the world as Doubting Thomas. Well, this is a man who went by a nickname throughout his life, but it was not the doubter. It was something very different. But Thomas, today we're going to be looking at that thought. Do we need to see it, to believe it, or do we embrace faith? Being certain of what we do not see. Well, the first point is we look at Thomas. And Thomas, the passages, all of them are in the Gospel of John because Thomas is only mentioned once in each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's when Jesus appoints the apostles. Just his name is given. We know nothing else about Thomas except what the apostle John, fondly remembering Thomas and his questions and his actions, wrote down for us much later than those other Gospels, when he penned, near the end of his life, the Gospel of John. From John's writings, God has told us and given us a picture of Thomas. And there are three snapshots that we're going to go through quickly today to look at this man who struggled with seeing versus believing. Now, the old saying you all know is, seeing is believing. It's like the person says, well, I'm from Missouri, the show me state. I won't believe unless you show me. Thomas was stubborn. He was like the Missouri mule. But I don't see that completely. Let's look at the three snapshots of Thomas. In the first, we see Thomas. It's always about what he could and could not see. The first snapshot is Thomas could not see beyond death. To him, death was the end of everything. It was the end of the road. It was the end of the trail. It was the dead end at the end of life. It was the disaster from which nobody recovered. And Thomas, as we look at these three passages, one thing that I will agree with is that his frame of mind tended to be a little pessimistic. We don't know what Thomas did in his background before Jesus called him. Some people... If they're friends with a lot of farmers, or perhaps you're a farmer yourself, you say, I think Thomas might have been a farmer. He's a little on the pessimistic side. You know, when you talk to a farmer, oh, it's a beautiful day. We need rain. 
Oh, it's a beautiful rainy day. Too much rain. Oh, <laughs> you know, you can't ever find something, a silver lining that a good farmer can't surround it with the cloud, if you know what I mean. They just, and where does that come from? It comes from living a life of faith, trusting God for everything, and yet always farmers are waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, this is good, but, you know, the crop is great, but it's not in. Remember, we're coming up on Canada Day. The Rachels remember Canada Day a few years ago. Remember that hailstorm? Boy, you just never know. People often say, well, don't trust that crop until it's in the bin. Well, my brother-in-law Dana had his canola in the bin, and it heated and burned in the bin, and so that wasn't even safe. So I think Thomas, I see him as a farmer. And when I hear his voice, when I read Scripture, I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of an odd duck. I hear Thomas's voice as a cartoon character. I hear him as Eeyore the donkey from the Winnie the Pooh Disney shorts. Here's Thomas. All right, let's go with Jesus. I, that's 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 what Thomas was. And isn't it fascinating, though, when Jesus picked his 12, he purposely chose a man of that frame of mind who said, well, I don't know. You better show me that. I don't know. Yeah, all this talk of faith. I want to see it with my own two eyes. Why would Jesus do that if it wasn't for our sake? The fact that we share Thomas's outlooks and struggles as well. So I love Thomas. We relate to Thomas. He was chosen for a reason. We're using his name, and as I did with uh, with Andrew, Andreas in Greek, what was Thomas's name? Thomas is an Aramaic word. It's an Aramaic name, and it's a nickname. John translates it for his Greek-speaking readers as Didymus. Thomas and Didymus both mean the twin, that he's one of a set of twins, that's his nickname, the twin. We don't know any other name for him, but that's what he was called. He was never, Scripture never informs us of who his brother is, who his twin is. And I read one author said, you know why that's probably true? Because we're Thomas's twin. We're his twin brother. We have the same attitude, the same show me, seeing is believing attitude that Thomas had throughout his life. And I said, yeah, there's some, there's some truth to that. But let's look at the first of those three snapshots. Turn in your Bible to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus, the death of Lazarus, Jesus' friend in Bethany, and his resurrection. Now, this is right at the end of Jesus' public ministry. Lazarus' death and resurrection were part of this series of events that snowballed into the Passion Week and the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, after Lazarus' resurrection, Jesus' enemies not only wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Lazarus too because he was such a witness of the power of God shown through Jesus. Well, on their journey from the Galilee, where they were relatively popular and safe, to Judea, the center of opposition to Jesus... That was a dangerous trip for Jesus at this point in his ministry. We read in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back 
there. Jesus, it's dangerous. Take care of yourself. Sometimes, as Peter found out, Jesus didn't seem to care very much for his own safety. Jesus would foretell his crucifixion and they would try to stop him. Don't talk that way. That's crazy talk. That's why Jesus told Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, later down in the story, uh, they hear message that Lazarus is sick and Jesus tarries. And the disciples aren't sure. Are we making that trip to Judea? Or are we staying here in relatively safe ground? A little further down in John 11, verse 11, we read. But after he had said this, this is Jesus speaking, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. They didn't want to go. You don't need to go wake him up. He's doing fine. Verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. He was bound and determined, face set like flint. Jesus was going into danger. And this is the first time in scripture we hear the voice of Thomas. Then Thomas called Didymus, both meaning twin, said to the rest of the disciples, he turns and tells the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's not the doubting Thomas that we often think of. This is a man showing courage and incredible loyalty. If Jesus is going to his death, we're going to go with him. But behind it, do you see that strain of pessimism? Thomas is saying he wouldn't listen to sense. He's going to get himself killed. Jesus is going to go die. Let's go die with him. Or we might as well go and die with him. He didn't think there was any other way. In fact, Jesus did go to his death knowing full well that this was God's plan to bring about salvation for us and to pay for our sins. See, Thomas could not see beyond death. He thought that's where God's plan ended for you that everything else after that was beyond us death was the end of the trail but for you a follower of christ a child of god you realize that death doesn't mean that at all for you that it is the unknown and that physically we we often fear the unknown so there's fear surrounding our death but in god's sight the psalmist says the death of his saints is precious because God sees you coming home. You're now with him. You no longer live by faith. You see him face to face. You're home with the Lord and that's precious to him. So the apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Rome, the apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight speaks of, is there anything of the difficult circumstances of life up to and including death that can separate you from God, the love of God that you have in Christ Jesus? Anything? I don't think so. Paul writes in that powerful passage, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? Friends, these are the things you see. If you're a Thomas, you see the trouble and hardship. Is that going to separate you from God? Shall trouble or hardship 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, circumstances cannot separate you from the love of God. He is present with you in those circumstances. And you are not only present with God, you are in His heart. He loves you. Jesus came for you. He died for you. He took your sins to the cross. Oh, the great love of Jesus shown to us. But at this point in his walk, Thomas couldn't see it. He still only had eyes for those circumstances, the present, the here and now, the danger and potential death, which to Thomas seemed like the end of the road. That's snapshot number one. A few chapters later, it's John 14. In this passage, we see that Thomas, he could not see the way to heaven. He had Jesus in his life for years by this time, but he still struggled seeing beyond here and now a way to heaven. This is the upper room. The Gospel of John in chapters shows Jesus' discussion in his teaching to the disciples in the upper room on the very night before he was crucified. This was precious time, Jesus preparing them, his last words and instructions to them before he went to the cross for them. And in this passage, Thomas asks a question. And Jesus' answer is one of the most powerful and important passages in Scripture. So without Thomas, we wouldn't have this important passage. It's important for Thomas to be in this passage. Now, this is Jesus at the table. Judas has already left the table. He's already out betraying Jesus. And now Jesus digs in and shares his heart with those around the table. He looks into their eyes and he sees his closest friends and he sees they are nervous, they are tense, they are afraid, both for themselves, their safety, but especially for the safety of Jesus. He sees anxiety, fear, and trouble in their high eyes and in their hearts. And so in John chapter 14, the most comforting, beautiful words, Jesus speaks to them. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. <laughs> what powerful words. What comfort. What beauty. But to Thomas, they made absolutely no sense. 
Jesus talking about going to his father's home. And Thomas is probably thinking, we've been to Nazareth. We've seen the home of Joseph the carpenter. Why would Jesus go there? Would he prepare a place for me in that home? He's thinking of the here and now. He's not spiritually minded. He's earthly minded. He can't see the reality of what Jesus is speaking of. The way to the father. I don't know the way. And he looks around. Have you ever been in a group? Maybe back in your school days. The teacher says something and you don't have a clue what they're saying. And you look around at your other students. They look as confused as you. And you're praying that prayer. Would somebody please lift your hand and ask my question? I don't want to look like the dumb one. I want somebody else to ask the question. I heard a teacher once say, there are no dumb questions. He says, sure, there's dumb students, but not dumb questions. But <laughs> So you don't want to be singled out. Not Thomas. Oh, I love Thomas. <laughs> he may have a bit of Eeyore to him, but he asked the question in all their minds. Thomas, continuing in John chapter 14, after Jesus has just made that wonderful statement, going to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me. You know where I'm going. You guys know the way. You've been with me for years. You're picking up on what I'm saying now, aren't you? So Thomas puts up his hand. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? What are you talking about? (laughs) I wish, I know one day in glory we'll be able to see this scene. I guarantee you, there were a few other heads nodding. <laughs> I'm like, come on, Jesus, you know? And then Jesus answers. The way? You want to know the way? Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You notice he threw in the visual reference for Thomas's sake. You've seen him. Thomas, you want to see the father? You want to see God? You know me and have seen me? You've seen the father. Jesus revealing the triune nature of God, that father, son, and spirit. We have one God manifest to us in three persons. Beauty and the mystery of it. If you can comprehend the Trinity, I think you've got the wrong idea. It's beyond us. It truly is. We accept it by faith. And Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. I'm the way to the Father. And if you want to see God, you know him. You've met him already. Now, this is powerful because Jesus is challenging Thomas to accept him, not only as the way to the Father, the Messiah, the anointed one, But if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Accept the divinity of Jesus as well. Is that going to be a bridge too far for Thomas to accept Jesus as the Father? As God, just as the Father is God? John, the Gospel of John, all of these passages are written for our benefit. Because God wants us to believe based on his message to us. We'll be in John 20 in just a moment, but John 20, verses 30 and 31. 
we read this. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except by faith in Jesus. Many people want to reject the message of the gospel because of its exclusivity. That's one of the strengths of it. There's not many ways to God. All religions have a little, little, uh, a little piece of the truth. Nobody has the market cornered on truth. There's many pathways to God. No, there's not. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. He's God's answer to the sin problem of mankind, Jesus. But at that point, Thomas had a hard time seeing it because that called for spiritual insight and faith. And he was a man of sight. The final snapshot takes us to John chapter 20. And in this, Jesus is resurrected. All of it's come true. The good news is good. But in this moment, On Easter, Thomas misses out. Thomas could not believe the resurrection. It was too good to be true in his opinion. A man who struggled, if he didn't see it, he couldn't believe it. In God's timing, Thomas missed Easter. We don't know why Thomas isn't with the disciples on the night of the first Easter Sunday. We don't know where he is. Perhaps because they're fearful of the Jews and being caught and perhaps crucified themselves. Maybe Thomas, in fear, had separated himself from the group. Maybe Thomas was so distraught and discouraged that he wanted to go off and grieve on his own. But Thomas is missing in this passage. And it's Jesus after being seen by the women earlier in the morning, on Easter morning, Jesus now revealing himself as the risen Lord in the evening to the large group of disciples. We find that in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. This is the night of Easter day. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came And stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. Shalom. He gives them God's peace, God's blessing. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Overjoyed. The following verse is our theme verse. That's when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. But you notice what he did there first. Jesus announced to them that they had the peace of God. No more enmity between God and man. Their sins have been forgiven. Jesus has paid the price and now their faith is in the risen Lord. These are saved individuals. And then he shows them his wounds. Why would he do that? Well, some people say it's to show that he wasn't a phantom. He's not a ghost. He's a real living being with a body. But Isaiah, the prophet, said, by his wounds, we are healed. 
Jesus is showing them the price of their salvation. The precious wounds of Jesus that brought us peace with God. What a powerful moment that must have been. And yet, who is not there? The one who could have used that visual, Thomas. He's not there. And when he finally does show up, wherever he was off to, maybe off they sent him to get bread, I don't know, but he was out. And Jesus knew he would be out, I'm convinced of that. When Thomas comes back, we read in John chapter 20, we pick up the story again in verse 24 and 25. Now Thomas, called Didymus, your twin and mine, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. That is harsh. Thomas was throwing down a challenge. He was putting conditions on his faith, obstacles to it. Thomas was saying, unless God does this, 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 I'm not going to trust him. Now, to me, this seems unreasonable until I stop and remember how many times I do the very same thing. Lord, when I pray, I want you to answer my prayer in this and this and this way. But if you do this, I won't, I won't believe it. I want this conditions on God and how he's going to work. And when Jesus calls Thomas on this graciously, Thomas backs right off because Thomas has put conditions on what Jesus has done. And then Jesus, he comes, but he let Thomas stay in that state of unbelief, walking down that path. Everybody else is joyous and celebrating the risen Lord. And Thomas is stewing thinking, are they crazy? Are they trying to deceive me? I just can't believe it. It's too good to be true. And when something's too good to be true, it's not true. That's what Thomas is thinking. For a week, he thought that. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, <laughs> and nobody had tattled on Thomas. Jesus knew. He had been with them even if they couldn't have seen him. Where two or more are gathered in his name, he's right here in our midst. He's here this morning. He was there with them when Thomas made his speech about the nail prints and putting his hand in his side. Then it says, he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. This is where the doubting Thomas comes from. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is powerful. Jesus not only speaks to Thomas in this passage, but he speaks to you and I as well. 
Jesus, when he tells Thomas to stop doubting and believe, the original language is very powerful. The tense of the the verbs used there and the, the, the grammar itself teaches a lesson. We don't always lean on that. But what literally is saying, stop this road of unbelief. He said, Thomas, you are traveling down a path of unbelief. If you continue on that path, you are going to separate yourself from God completely. He says, stop putting conditions on God. Stop traveling that path of unbelief and put your faith in Jesus. Stop doubting and believe. And then Jesus speaks of you and I. Blessed are those who believe and have never seen. Just as the book Gospel of John said, these have been recorded. The Word of God has been recorded for us that we may have faith because it's faith that saves, not sight. Have you ever wondered why Jesus just doesn't make this Thomas appearance to every person in the world? He could do it. He could do it. Seven, eight billion people, not a problem. Jesus could appear to every one of them and show them the nail scars in his hands, the wound in his side. But he doesn't. Because that wouldn't be faith. There would be no trust. That would be, come on, believe what your eyes tell you. Believe your lying eyes. And we know that that's no guarantee. In fact, Scripture tells a story of this exact situation. Remember Jesus told the story of the poor man, Lazarus, and the rich man at whose gate Lazarus used to beg? And then Lazarus and the rich man both die. Lazarus goes to the abode of the righteous dead, Abraham's bosom with Abram. And the rich man is in Hades, in the grave, in torment, because of his selfish, sinful life he'd lived. Jesus tells that hair-raising story in Luke chapter 16. In that heartbreaking story, the rich man in hell cries out to Father Abraham and begs him to send somebody to his unbelieving family that they don't die and go to hell. Verse 27 of Luke 16, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. That's the Bible. That's what the Jewish people called the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Seeing is not believing. In fact, the faith that God desires, when God, his inspired word, the word of God, the Bible, is applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit, You're either convicted of your sin and you repent and put your faith in him or you reject it. You need to make that choice and it needs to be a free choice. Faith or not. It's not, I cannot believe. The choice is I will not believe. 
And most people make that choice to reject Jesus and not believe in him. Friends, faith is essential. And we finish with a couple quick verses speaking of faith. Faith is essential for the life you and I live. It saves us. We're saved by our faith in Jesus, but it also keeps us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God. That means you've been made right with God. A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Your whole life is a exercise of faith just as it is written the righteous will live by faith paul wrote this because that church was being troubled by people that said yeah you can be saved by faith in jesus but you're not kept by faith you're kept by good works the works of the old testament law and the apostle paul says no you're not saved by works you're saved by faith you're not kept by works you're kept by faith Scripture says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We have to trust him that he is a God who knows us and loves us. We're saved by faith. We live by faith. Hmm. We finish with that key passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. The Apostle Paul speaking of our own death because we all face death. We're mortal beings. And we know one day our faith will be rewarded and we'll have no more faith. We'll live by sight. We'll see God face to face. With that in mind, Paul writes, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. Paul says we'd love to go be with the Lord and live by sight, but... Till then, every day, I'm going to live it by faith, trusting Him. Our loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord, hmm, they see Jesus today. They see the wounds that brought them peace. They live by sight and rejoice. But you and I, we're called to not be Thomas, but to move beyond what we can see, to live by faith. It's fascinating God gives us that glimpse of Thomas. And as we do each time, we ask ourselves, whatever happened to Thomas? The next scripture, or the next picture rather, shows what many people believe is that the early church traditions are unanimous that when the disciples obeyed the call of Jesus to go into all the world and preach the good news and they divided up the directions they went, Thomas the lot fell to him to go east. Now, east of the Holy Land in those days was the former Persian Empire known as the Parthian Empire. Early church historians were unanimous that Thomas eventually went to the Parthians. Some people say, and I don't know if it's just one of those many legends that grow up, that Thomas was reluctant to go, that he was slow in answering the call, and Jesus had to appear to him personally and remind him, hey, now you see me, get out there. But Thomas did go, not only to the Parthians, modern day Iran and Iraq, but he kept going until he reached India. 
Now, there are at least seven churches that claim they were founded by the Apostle Thomas. When the Portuguese, the first people to write a history of that land, landed in the 1500s, they found a thriving Christian community in India. And all the families, if they had sons, you know the name of at least one of the sons, it was Thomas. And to this day, we still see that. Thomas, the legends say, he who was willing to go and die with Jesus, oh, he did something better. Driven through his body by a spear of a soldier, he eventually died for Jesus. Not just with him, but for him. For the love of Christ and to share it with a lost and hurting world. Next week, we're going to see one of the sons of thunder, James, one of the sons of Zebedee. Let's close our time together with a prayer. And after that, Pastor Dave has an announcement he'd like to make for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when I see Thomas asking those questions, seeming slow on the uptake, unable or unwilling to believe unless he sees something, Lord, I see myself in that. How many times do I put limits on what you can do? I look at the bottom line of the church budget and I say, well, we can't do that. We don't have the resources. We don't have the money, the funds. But we have the living God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and nothing is beyond you. Lord, help us to live by faith, not just to be saved by faith, but to live by trusting Jesus every day. Thank you, Lord, for Thomas and the lessons that you teach us through his life. Lord, help us to be people today of faith. This is our desire. This is our prayer. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.